0: episode of Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller and this is my podcast. This is hard to believe. This is the 200th episode of this little show that I started five years ago. Uh, October 19th, 2016 was the first uh, episode of Scratching the Surface. It was a short kind of introduction, setting out my intentions for the show and what I wanted it to be. And then the week after that was the first episode with Rob and Petro And if you were to ask me then that, A, this show is still going on five years later, and that we'd get to 200 episodes, I would not uh, have thought that was possible. And so I am uh, amazed and grateful that we have made it. This far, we're doing something a little bit different for this episode. There's no guest. Uh, I am not talking to anyone else. I'm I'm just talking to you. Over the last two weeks, we've solicited questions from you, the listeners, uh, about what you were curious about, whether that was about the show or about me or about my work, and we've been collecting those. And I spent some time to kind of organize those into a into an arc that, that hopefully makes sense and have thought about them a little bit. And I'm going to walk through those and and answer those. And so this is a little bit of a behind the scenes look at both the making of scratching the surface and at how I think about this show and how I think about my work. I realize that, that many of you have come to the show through different, different ways. You found your way here at different points in time. Maybe you had listened at one time and left and have come back. Uh, And so some of you might not know who I am or why I do this show. And so before we get into your questions, I want to kind of reintroduce myself and reintroduce this show, what this show is and what this show means to me. I am a graphic designer. I'm an assistant professor of graphic design at North Carolina State University here in Raleigh, North Carolina. I am two months into that job. I just moved here uh, to take this full-time teaching position after... A few years in New York, where I was working as a designer independently. I was teaching adjunct at schools in New York and doing some writing. I'm also a contributing editor for Ion Design, which is AIGA's online design publication. This show started when I was in graduate school. I went to graduate school at the Maryland Institute College of Art uh, back in 2015, and. I went to graduate school after years of working in the industry, but always having this interest in everything kind of outside of graphic design. I was really interested in writing. I was interested in criticism. I was interested in how we talk about design, and how design is discussed within the wider world. And in the jobs that I had, I couldn't find a way to do that. Those things always felt disconnected. And so I went to graduate school with the kind of clear intentions to reposition my practice, to be one of not just being a practicing designer, but to also be somebody who could think and write and talk about design at both deep and wide levels. So a lot of the work that I was doing while I was at MICA was this sort of kind of meta-analysis on my own practice, on what graphic design was, on the type of work that I wanted to do. And when it was time to think about my thesis, when it was time to kind of think about what I wanted to do, you know, to kind of cap off my time at grad school, I kept coming back to this idea of design criticism. What does it mean to be a design critic today? And so I started interviewing designers and writers who I thought were writing and talking about design at an interesting level. And my kind of idea was that maybe this would go into a book or or something like that. And realized that these interviews were actually really interesting and they were fun. I had never interviewed anybody before and I was really enjoying it. And so my thesis project became this podcast. The first, I think it's 20 episodes of Scratching the Surface. If you go back, that's what I turned in uh, for my MFA thesis. And when I finished in grad school, I realized that there were a lot more people that I could talk to that I wasn't any clearer on the questions that I was asking around design criticism, that I actually had a lot more questions now. And then also that there were more people interested in this than I realized. And so I've just kept going. And here we are five years later. It's expanded beyond just graphic design criticism and talking about architecture, talking about design theory, talking about kind of creative practice at large. but I think a lot of the core DNA of the show from, from the early days are still here. And so we'll talk about some of that in the questions. I think the show has evolved over the years, but I think it's also stayed the same in a lot of ways also. So like I said, I've organized these questions into a way to hopefully have a nice kind of arc to it. Um, I don't necessarily, I have not, I've, I've thought a little bit about these questions, but I've, I'm going to make this up as I go and we're going to see where it takes us. I'm going to try to try to make it interesting. So we'll start by talking about scratching the surface. There were a lot of questions around the podcast, how it came about, how I how I do that. Then we'll move into some questions around kind of teaching and design practice in general, and then we'll end with some uh, some kind of quick questions that you asked. Sort of a similar arc to uh, to what the show is and, and kind of how a normal episode will be, except this time I'm just asking the questions to myself. So I'm hoping I'm hoping that this turns out okay. We'll we'll see where it goes. So the first question was from uh, from Instagram from somebody I think it's pronounced Schurmeister Designs, who asked, uh, "How do you find or decide who to interview on the podcast?" So since the show began, I have kept a big spreadsheet with possible guests. These are people that I come across. These are projects that I see, and I'll go and kind of see who made them or who worked on them, things that I read, and I'll kind of, you know, that stick with me, I'll add the author to that spreadsheet. And every week or so, I'll send out one or two emails to people. I'll kind of find their email address, I have their email in the spreadsheet, and you know, notes about who they are. And, you know, every week, every two weeks, I'll just send out a couple of these emails to different people who are on on that spreadsheet to see if they're they'd be interested in being on the show. And the criteria really is I need to be interested in these people. This is something I thought about a lot when I was just starting the show is what type of interview podcast is this? Is this one where I'm going to kind of bring people on with opposing views and challenge them and and have you know rigorous debate? Is this going to be Uh, kind of softball questions, just kind of asking people all the questions they've normally been asked in interviews. And I really wanted this show to be one that was thoughtful and could be about ideas and people wrestling with ideas. And so I need to be interested in the person that I'm talking to. Either they've done a project that I really like or their work interests me in some way or intrigues me in some way, or they're doing something that I want to do myself and I don't know how to do it, or I want to move into that type of work. And these are usually the frameworks that I use of around whether somebody should be on the show or if they would make a good, good guest for the show. Uh, I will not have somebody on the show just because, you know, their publicist sent me their latest book or because they're somebody who's kind of a, you know, hot name in, in design right now, unless there's some kind of way that I can find myself into their work uh, in some way. And so it's a, it's a, I, I approach each interview as a fan in a lot of ways, a fan of their work, a fan of how the person thinks. And I think that mindset has actually become a really nice sort of curatorial framework for the show, I hope, in that um, it can kind of follow my interests in a lot of ways and, and the kind of people that I'm interested in can, can evolve. This relates to the next question, question, which also came from Instagram from somebody called design a file. They asked a, a really great question. Actually, they said, if there was a designer, design writer, curator, theorist, or educator that you could bring back from the dead to interview, who would you have wanted on the show? And what would you ask them? What would you challenge them on? What would you like to know more about? This is such a great question. Uh, I'm actually surprised I've never been asked this question before. I've given you know talks at schools and things like that about the podcast and nobody's ever asked me this question. Uh, and so I'm afraid that I'm gonna have really boring answers. Uh, They're gonna be people, you know, probably a lot of the people that you would expect. Um, it's people who are like the people that I've had on the show, people who are kind of like me. The immediate names that come to mind are Uh, I think Buckminster Fuller would probably be a really hard person to interview, Um, but I would love to talk to him as far as I know we are not related. Uh, I've I've done some research on this, and I I can't find a connection there, but I think he would be really interesting. People like uh, William Morris, I think would be fascinating to have on the show, especially how he moved between different, different mediums and different types of design. Joseph Albers is somebody I've always been fascinated by. His connections to The Bauhaus, Black Mountain College, and Yale feels like something that can be explored more. I'd love to talk to him about that. Uh, Willem Sandberg, uh, kind of his move from graphic design to museum direction, I think would be really interesting. I realize those are all dead white guys. Um, I would be... You know, all the mid-century people, I've always felt a connection to Charles and Ray Eames. I think both of them would be fascinating. Florence Knoll, I think, would be <laughs> would be a really fun person to talk to, especially how she kind of, you know, studied design and, you know, was at Cranbrook. And then with her husband kind of built this massive furniture company would be interesting. George Nelson has always been a hero of mine, especially the his work across writing and design. Uh, so I think he would be great. And then somebody who's maybe a little bit lesser known is Sybil moholy Naj, who was Laszlo Moholy-Nagy of the Bauhaus, his second wife. She ended up becoming a really prolific architecture writer. She was one of the first, one of the first, if not the first, uh, women architecture professors at Pratt, where I used to teach, um, she wrote a book about Laszlo, She wrote a book about um, she wrote books about other architects um, and was really ahead of her time thinking about design and the environment, thinking about kind of environmental issues, things like that. I think um, and, and she's kind of been lost to history in, in a lot of ways. And so talking to her I think would be would be fascinating. Uh, next question is from Pau de Riba, who asks, how many hours does it take to make each episode? I've been asked this question so many times and I don't have a good answer for this. I, it, the podcast is not really my real job. And so it often fits between a lot of other things and I kind of do it when I have time to do it. And so I don't really have a good sense of how long it takes. Um, I usually budget around two hours for the interview. I, I kind of try to interview I try to let the interview go about an hour. Sometimes it goes a little bit longer than that, but I always kind of buffer a little time before and after. Uh, And then it takes kind of two hours or so to edit the episode after the fact. And then to put together the episode page, make the social media images, that sort of thing. Um, And then, you know, research takes the longest uh, and it's sort of the hardest in all of this. And that's something that you know, often stretches kind of weeks beforehand, reading everything that they've written, reading other interviews, thinking about them, thinking about their work, spending time with them. That takes a lot. And that's kind of hard to really quantify. If I had to give you a number, I'd say that I could, it's probably about one day a week. I spend on the podcast. Uh, Usually that's Wednesdays, the days the episode comes out. That's usually when I edit the next week's episode. I try to record episodes that day. And I try to spend most of Wednesday working on podcasting. So maybe like eight hours, eight hours a week. Um, But that's, that's a really rough, rough number. The next question is from former guest and after she was on the show became in real life friend, Ashley Mendelson. Ashley asks, how has your approach to interviewing evolved? Have you streamlined your research process? Do you have clearer goals Uh, as in the types of people you choose, types of conversations you want to have? This is such a good question uh, that I had not really thought about before until, until she sent this in. Uh, So I went back and looked at my notes for older episodes just to kind of see what I had prepped and how I had had done that. And I've gotten much more casual, to be honest, in both my prep for the interviews and then in the interviews themselves. And I think this is the result of sort of having more confidence in being an interviewer, in knowing that I will know how to follow up with a question in the early days, I would write out every question that I wanted to ask and I, and I would write out very specific questions and I would kind of want to do them in the order that I want to do them. So if somebody, if I asked a question and somebody answered it in a way that I didn't expect, I, I would get kind of thrown off a little bit. And that doesn't happen as much anymore. I don't write out specific questions anymore. Uh, When I'm interviewing a guest, I have a text file on my screen with just a bunch of notes and topics and ideas, quotes from things they've written, uh, things that I heard them say, things that I'm just kind of interested in about them. Sometimes these are framed as questions. Sometimes it's just statements about their work. And I use that to guide the conversation. And then I kind of make up the questions as I go on. And, And I think this has... Allowed me to really follow the threads of the conversation to kind of let it go where it wants to go, which has honestly made for more interesting interviews. They've gone in unexpected places. People have talked about things that I never would have asked about uh, if I had kind of kept to my script. And so that kind of looseness has actually made for much tighter conversations because I can kind of be present in the interview and try to respond to what they are talking about so the conversation can kind of build at its own its own pace and at its own sort of um i don't know the word you know let the conversation go where it wants to go i guess and so that looseness has been really really nice uh steven rosker who for those of you who don't know actually Handles all the social media for me for the podcast. He makes the kind of quote images, does all the Instagram stories, promotes the episodes on social. He if you've you know tweeted about or or you know sent a DM to the show, he's the one who responds to those. He's been a huge help uh, over the last year, kind of really helping that. So that's something that I don't have to do. But he asked a couple of uh, (laughs) good questions. He asked, what was it exactly that kept you going past 50, 100, and then 150 to 200 episodes? What are you still trying to find or figure out? And there were kind of multiple versions of this question that came in, which I'm not sure how I feel if people are like, why are you still doing this? Um, uh, But honestly, I I do this because I need these conversations. There are Been multiple times over the years that I've kind of thought maybe the podcast is winding down and then I'll have a conversation with somebody on the show that just completely energizes me and reinvigorates me and my own practice. And in many ways, I see the show as kind of the core of a lot of my other work. It's through these conversations that I can, you know, kind of articulate my own work and figure out. What I'm trying to do and work through the issues, you know, that I'm kind of trying to do uh, at any given time. I think if you listen back to every episode of the show and just listen to my questions and the kind of comments I make, you can actually see a really nice trajectory of my own interests and concerns in my work and so it began with criticism and then moved into kind of writing generally there's a big stretch of episodes all around teaching which was when i started teaching when i got interested in curating and curation i talked to a bunch of curators right now uh you're probably hearing a lot of questions around administration and how that relates to creative practice and so this show is a way for me to kind of figure those things out for myself. And that way, it's a, a very selfish endeavor. Um, but that's what keeps it going is, is it's a really nice excuse for me to talk to people who are much smarter than myself about how they do their work. So I can kind of better understand uh, how I do my work. Here's another question from Ashley. She says, what big trends and insights have emerged from your conversations? And do you think that's more of a result of you approaching people with similar worldviews, or do you think it's representative of larger trends from the design world? I definitely think any trends or insights that have emerged from the show definitely come from me choosing very particular types of guests. You know, like I said earlier, there are people that I'm kind of predisposed to be interested in. It's usually people who are working across disciplines, sort of kind of polymathic practices who are, you know, kind of thinking deeply about their work or about the profession in general. Uh, But the one thing that I think comes up again and again on the show that I think... You know, perhaps really defines what Scratching the Surface is and has become is this, this sort of question of meta design or this kind of sub question of what actually is graphic design today. And this idea of the blurring of disciplines that these silos between different types of design maybe no longer make sense anymore. And this kind of fluidity between practice really is this thread that runs all the way back from the beginning of the show. And that's the type of work that I want to do. And so that's the type of people that I'm usually talking to. But I think there's something to this. I think there's these sort of definitions of different types of design maybe aren't working anymore for a lot of people. And so maybe we need new terms or new definitions. Something I tell my students all the time is that I think every generation needs to redefine graphic design for that generation. And maybe this generation is looking for something blurrier and less, less kind of defined. Uh, And I think that that's really what this show is about, is about kind of blurring those boundaries and thinking about interdisciplinarity this leads into uh, a question that came out on Twitter from young AIGA longtime supporter of the show uh, he writes design has always been a pretty vast and fragmented field architecture interior industrial graphic etc but with the rise of tech it feels like what was formerly quote graphic design has been further shattered into smaller pieces specifically with what is now graphic design and the many facets that includes does a degree in quote, graphic design makes sense anymore? Is it too broad now? How does a single program serve both those who want to make rigorous typography based publications and those looking to build apps? What is graphic design now? That is the question, right? I need to be careful. <laughs> I need to be careful what I say here, you know, as a new faculty member in a graphic design program, talking about whether it makes sense to get a degree in graphic design. Um, but I will, I will s- talk about this question around what is graphic design. Um, when I had Mr. Keedy on the show, he said something that I've thought about a lot. He said that graphic design is a 20th century profession that does not exist anymore. It's, you know, it's sort of, um, uh, you know, early kind of 1900s and then has, has morphed into something new. And then when I interviewed Michael Rock for a piece that I wrote for Ion Design about design criticism, he said that he thinks graphic design is something that started, you know, in the 1920s, and died in 2008. And it died in 2008 when the iPhone came out, when the App Store specifically came out, because that put the tools of the designer in everyone's pocket. And I've come around to this thinking: I think that the definitions that we use or the definitions that we kind of think of when we say graphic design are really 20th century ideas. So uh, what is graphic design now when everybody is a graphic designer? And I truly believe that everybody is a graphic designer. If you are making an Instagram story and you're putting stickers and text, you are working with text and image. If you are, you know, a small business owner making a sign to put in your you know, the front of your store to say that people have to wear masks when they come in, that that is also graphic design. And I don't see this as a bad thing. I see this as a good thing. I see this as graphic design. I've talked about this before. Graphic design not as colonizing, as taking over all the others, but as democratizing, as making these tools available to more people. And so if everything is graphic design, what does it mean to actually be a graphic designer or to teach graphic design? And the definition that I've used lately for graphic design is that graphic design is about forming ideas and giving ideas form. It is about uh, taking concepts, ideas, conceptual frameworks and giving them some sort of formal quality, giving them shape and color and, you know, turning them into artifacts, making them something concrete. But it's also a process. It's a way to form ideas, to figure out what we think. It's it's very much like writing in that way. And so how do we teach this? I have no idea. That's why I wanted to go into academia full time is because this is a question that I think is really interesting. What does it mean to teach this thing that everybody kind of already does? Um, I don't have a good answer for that. I'm not sure... Um, how we do that or what a single kind of program does when people are making books and user interfaces and spaces. But I think this kind of putting all these things together is actually like a really interesting, you know, kind of letting these things live in a department um, might lead to some, some really interesting results. The next question. I think this question came in on Instagram. Uh, it's just how did one? How does one get involved in the design world who didn't study it in university? This is you know very related to the previous question. I think there's a lot of ways to kind of get into the design world. Um, I think there's great content on YouTube all about like kind of the tools and and the practice of graphic design. There are tons of you know, books and resources, um, that you can seek out, you know, if you are listening to the show, you're in the design world. Like I, I think of this, sh- this show, the show as a way to kind of get into the, the design world. Um, the other thing I'll say is, is to reach out to people, reach out to people who you admire, reach out to people who are in the field, who are doing the type of work you want to do. I did that when I was younger, when I just started out. I'm, I mean, in a way I'm still doing that through this show, but, uh, before I had a, podcast I would still just reach out to people who are doing work that was interesting to me and just say hey can I get coffee I'm in I'm in your town um, you know can we or you know now you can just do it over zoom and most people say yes it's really amazing to kind of be able to have these types of conversations and kind of hear how they think and and get their advice even if it's just like a half hour or 45 minutes I can't tell you how many people I've done this with how many people on the show I met first because I just you know, cold emailed them. Um, and, and I try to do that now too, when I get emails from people, you know, asking, I try to never turn down an opportunity to talk to somebody who's kind of interested in these things. And so I think, um, you know, kind of networking and reaching out paired with, you know, self-education, um, is a great way to kind of get into this work. Uh, this question's from one of my former students, Helen, who asked, uh, how has teaching informed your design practice? How do you find ways to keep learning and growing outside of educational context? Teaching has informed everything that I do. I started teaching actually around the exact same time that I started the show, and I think it has fundamentally changed how I think about design. It's made me um, think about it wider, to think about different contexts, to think about it across both cultural and commercial and conceptual ways. Um, And everything that I do, I kind of think about through the lens of an educator now, to be completely honest. I'm always thinking about how to translate these ideas for my students. Even when I'm working on design projects or writing something, my students in many ways are the audience for that. And the thing that's really interesting about teaching, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, is that teaching keeps me optimistic. I can be really cynical about design. I can be really down on the design field and the profession. But in the classroom, I see so much potential. I see so many ideas and excitement. And that really keeps me excited about this. And so when I feel like design is pointless and that we're not doing anything worthy, stepping into the classroom is a way to kind of get that back, to kind of figure out you know, to to see how my students are thinking about these things. And, you know, it's always, 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 um, you know, makes me feel better about where the profession might be headed. And now, Helen, to your second question about uh, finding ways to keep learning and growing outside of educational context. I read all the time. Um, I read anything that I can get. i love reading I you know not even just reading I just kind of consume as much as I can I'm kind of just curious about so many different things sometimes to a fault that it takes me away from the other things that I'm supposed to be doing um but I'm always kind of always looking for new things to learn as you know I don't I don't think that's anything that I did particularly it's I've always been like that um and so finding new ways to to learn is something that comes very easy to me because I'm kind of always just looking for things, uh, looking for things to learn. The next question is from Rhonda Haiti, uh, or Ron- Rhonda Hadi. Um I'm sorry, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Uh, But this is a really interesting question. As a new educator in design, how do you try to introduce different activities or exercises in the classroom to keep things interesting while also touching on notions of plurality and multiplicity? I'm really inspired by Arthur, I'm really inspired by Arturo Escobar and pluriversal design and I want to think about ways in which that can seep into the classroom and not perpetuate silos in critique or in classroom activities. This is a great question. Um, I'm gonna answer this two ways. Uh, One is, I've really tried to introduce a range of projects in the classroom with different goals and outcomes and also different processes. And so some of those projects are market-driven and, you know, you're meant to make a product as if it were real. Some of them are more conceptual and and might not make sense outside of the classroom assignment. Some of them are very specific where there's a specific deliverable that I want uh, students to come up with. And then some of them are wide open where it's just a prompt or an idea and they have to kind of, work through them. And, and this kind of comes out of this idea of treating the classroom as a laboratory. I found that often we default to sort of a modern design, experimental design paradox, where, you know, even those of us who know that sort of Swiss modernism is not the epitome of good graphics, design, we still kind of default to that language. And anything that is not that we call experimental. And I don't think that paradox works anymore. All work is experimental, um, you know, if it is new. And so I try to show a wide range of projects and not put a, any type of hierarchy on them when I'm kind of showing students work. Not saying like, this is design and then this is experimental design, or this is a grid and this doesn't use a grid and kind of saying that one is better and then the other one is, is an alternative. And it's all, I kind of present it as all the same. And I try to show, work that isn't even from design, art, architecture, fashion, film, you know, kind of showing how ideas that we're talking about in class manifest themselves in different ways and not putting a hierarchy to it. Um, I don't know if that specifically answers your question, but I think, you know, especially when I'm thinking about plurality and multiplicity, I also think about questions of decolonization, thinking about kind of getting rid of the hierarchies that we often have when we talk about this work. The last thing I'll say about this question specifically is, especially when thinking about Escobar and pluriversal design, something I've been thinking about a lot is the limits of user-centered design and what we're losing by always privileging the user. And I'm, specifically thinking about this in a sort of sustainability uh, environmental context. And I'm wondering if there's a next phase, I'm just starting to think about this, but is there like an ecology centered design that's actually taking this kind of whole range approach uh, in our design solutions, which I think is another way to begin to think about this. And I'm just starting to kind of work through these ideas now. So I don't know if those are going to go anywhere. Here's another really interesting question from uh, young AIGA. Uh, he, he sent a, a long question, kind of summarizing an old Michael Beirut essay on portfolio schools versus concept schools and some thoughts on sort of the experimental nature of a lot of schools and how that sort of relates to or doesn't relate to actually being in the profession. Um, he sums up his question saying basically just I want to know how you think schools can better prepare students, or is the role of school just for exploration? And I answer that with another question, which is, do these have to be opposed? I This is something that I think about a lot, and I especially thought about this back when I was applying for full-time positions. And I something that came up in some interviews of some schools where I was interviewing, presenting my work, kind of talking about about the work that I had done and kind of how I think about the classroom. And I got a lot of questions around like, great, you're doing interesting work. You're thinking about design at this interesting way, but students just want to get a job. So how does, how does this kind of connect to that? And I don't see these as, as opposite. I think this sort of experimental nature, this conceptual nature of a lot of programs is a way to prepare for, Jobs. I think we need to move away from kind of thinking about school as giving you a set of skills that are then marketable to get a job, and more so preparing students to think in deep ways, so they can work across you know different types of, different types of jobs, different types of roles, different types of professions. Uh, this idea that design school is teaching you all the sort of technical skills. So you have a good portfolio. I don't think that works anymore. When I was in school, I took three classes in flash. I've never used flash in my life. When I started teaching, uh, six years ago now, five years ago, Figma did not exist. Um, this, All the tools, all the technology is changing so fast that that's not what we should be focusing on. I think what we could be focusing on is teaching students how to learn, teaching students, students how to adapt to new technologies, and also giving students the tools to think about what graphic design should be. I think if we are just kind of teaching the tools, just teaching them to get jobs, that's gonna perpetuate this kind of siloing of the design profession that I'm pushing back against. And I think a lot of people are also pushing back against. I talk about this a little bit in my, an essay that I wrote for Ion Design on multidisciplinary design. And I think by teaching this conceptual thinking, <clears throat> teaching uh, kind of process and and teaching how to think gives students agency to move across the profession in different ways. And I think that, is a really valuable skill in getting a job. I would love to see design schools start to kind of get out in front of industry instead of always responding to industry. Industry says we need uh, motion designers, we need user experience designers, and then design schools just kind of then build that into curriculum. I would love to see academia, those of us in the profession think, what do we think the next generation of designer needs to know? What do we think it means to be a designer in 50 years? And let's do that and then educate the industry on that this is what design is today. That might be a pipe dream. I don't know if that's possible, but I, I think this idea of kind of conceptual versus practical, I, I would love to just see that collapse into into one thing. That connects uh, to to another question from young AIGA who asks what I'm most looking forward to about my new role at NC State. And so I've been here uh, two months. Uh, after teaching adjunct for five years, and I'm really excited to put down roots in one school. I've been, um, you know, kind of living this, this kind of life of just kind of having my toes in a lot of different things, and I'm really excited to invest in a community here and to help build something. Um, I want to learn how to be an academic. I uh, I don't know if I know how to do that. And so really kind of investing on the academic side is something I'm really interested in. And that's why I decided to come here. This is a school with really rigorous research and thinking about design in a, a larger school that thinks about all of those things. And so doing that here was something that was very exciting to me. And I'm excited to kind of try doing a lot of these things that I've been doing in an academic context. I'm gonna end with um a bunch of just kind of quicker questions that that came up. Uh this is a question from Hufflepuffy on Instagram that asked what I wanted to do when I was in middle school. This is not gonna be a surprising answer. I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be an architect and I wanted to be an interior designer. I was really interested in spaces and buildings and furniture and things like that. My friend who lived down the street from me also wanted to do those things and so we started like a, a little architecture business together um basically redesigning our friends bedrooms and we would put everything on map board pick out furniture and paint colors and present it to them and they their parents would pay us and we would like you know paint their bedroom walls and stuff and we decided to make a website for our our business to kind of help promote that and we made little brochures and business cards and things and i basically realized that i liked doing that stuff more than actually redesigning the bedrooms. I liked making the logo for our business. I liked making the website for our business, and that's kind of how I moved into into graphic design, which then came when I was, I guess, probably 14, when I kind of realized that, and, and being a graphic designer is kind of what I've wanted to do ever since then. Here's a question from Joy Su, who was also a former student of mine. She said, what's an important lesson or advice that has kept you moving forward, both in life and your career? I'm gonna answer this question in two ways. I'm gonna kind of talk about two personal pieces of advice. Uh, That was very helpful for me personally. And then one that's maybe a little bit more, I don't know more applicable to more people. I had two professors when I was in school who said things to me very offhandedly that had stuck with me um, and guided me a lot. When I was a sophomore very early in my design education in one of the advising meetings with my advisor the professor kind of looked at me and said you should think about grad school um, you have the mind for that, the way you're kind of approaching these projects. I think that's something that you would do really well in. I had no idea what grad school was. I didn't come from a family that, you know, kind of valued that or talked about that. I was only two years into my own undergraduate education. That's not something I had ever thought of. And that always stuck with me. I didn't really know what he meant then either about what grad school was, or even why he thought I would be good for it. And it was only later that all of that kind of fit together. And I think he was right. And that kind of encouragement and uh, planting that seed, um, you know, I think definitely helped me move forward. And then a couple of years later, I had another professor who just kind of offhandedly in class said, you know, you're going to teach, right? Like, like that's just what you're going to do. You're a teacher. Uh, and again, I, that's not something that I had really thought of or considered myself. Um, and it was only until later that I kind of realized uh, that she was right and and that, you know, teaching is actually the thing in design that I liked the most. More broadly, there's a famous Ira Glass quote about taste and how like when you do something, you have this taste and it doesn't match your skills and that's gone viral and people always tweet that. Um, but there's another Ira Glass quote that I think about all the time. I actually mentioned this on the 50th episode, talking about, he was he was reflecting on the anniversary of this American life. And they asked him, why has this American life gone on for so long? And he said, to have a long, sustainable, creative life, you have to keep making your craft harder for yourself. And I think that's right. And I think about that all the time. And I look at my own career, and I see that that's what I was doing. I was always looking for new challenges, not trying to like, you know, be too comfortable in one space, kind of always overcomplicating things again, sometimes to a fault. But that's, that is like 100% what has kept me going here. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing and I know that if I keep kind of asking these questions, whether that's in the classroom, whether that's on the podcast, whether that's in design work or writing, uh, this idea of always kind of adding new challenges, making things harder has, um, you know, always, always, always been the thing that has has kind of kept me going. Uh, Doug Thomas, another former guest and, uh, and a friend of mine, asks what non-design book has most surprised you in its utility in design practice or classes? This is a great question. I read all the time and i love reading about design i love reading design books but i also really really love reading books that have nothing to do with design Uh, i think i've said this on the podcast before i'm a a big lover of fiction Um, but some books that immediately come to mind are a book called let's talk about love by carl wilson this is a book about celine dion this is a 33 and a third book which is that uh, book series on music And this is such an amazing meditation on criticism, on taste, on art, on what makes good art, on why we like certain things and don't like other things. This is such a great way to kind of think about how we value design, how we talk about design. I have used this as a model in my design writing classes. It's a great book. It's a quick read. I recommend it to everybody. Another one is A a Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. This is a novel that really got me thinking about structure and form. This is a book that's really a, a book that is designed. There's an entire chapter that's written as a PowerPoint slide deck. And I think this is one of those great examples of the relationship between design and writing. And so I, this is another book that I've assigned to students to, to kind of read and analyze um, and have read multiple times over the years. And then another one that's recent is a, a new book called craft in the real world by uh, a guy named Matthew Silesis, I think is how you say his name. And this is a book about MFA writing programs and specifically about how we talk about craft in writing programs and how we talk about workshop in writing programs. Workshop is sort of the MFA writing version of critique. And this is a fascinating book in thinking about how we judge writing and how we think about audience, how we think about craft, how we think about what is good writing, and he really picks this apart. And he especially picks this apart uh, in thinking about how we subconsciously, especially in these writing programs, think about writing as writing that is for a white upper middle class audience. And that when it is not for that audience, we kind of don't know what to do with it. I'm writing something about this book and as it relates to kind of design critique. So I don't want to talk too much about it because I'm still kind of working through it. But it is, uh, I recommend this book to every design educator who wants to kind of think about judging work, talking about work in a open, um, kind of interesting way. This goes back to to Rhonda's question around um, kind of multiplicity. This book is a great way to kind of think about that. Also, if you go to my website, jerafuller.com library, I have a bunch of the books that have meant the most to me. These don't all relate to design, but you can kind of see the books that have really affected me um, on, a, on a kind of deep level and probably have some influence in my design practice that oftentimes I don't really even realize. So the last question uh, is the question that we use to end all of these. Uh, what am I reading right now? I'm reading two books. Um, one of them is a book called Sand Future by Justin Beale. Uh, I'm gonna have Justin on the podcast in a couple weeks, um, but this is a very fascinating experimental sort of part biography, part memoir. Um, biography of Minoru Yamasaki, who is the architect who designed the Twin Towers, the, the World Trade Center site. Um, and the structure and language and kind of composition of this book um, is unlike any architecture book that I've ever read before, and so I'm really, really enjoying this, and really excited to have him on the show soon to kind of talk about that. And then the other is a novel called *The Plot* by Gene uh, Half Corlitz. This is uh, a great uh, kind of fiction book about a writer who stole a plot uh, from somebody else and. Uh, many things ensue and I can't put either of these two books down and all I want to do is read these. And so those are the two books that I'm reading right now. So uh, this turned out better than I thought it was. I, I once we got going, I felt like uh, there there was a good rhythm to this. Thank you all who submitted questions. You really got me thinking about things that I hadn't thought about before, and it was fun to use this to reflect on the podcast and what the podcast uh, really has become. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Um, when I'm asked what keeps the show going in many ways, it's you, um, you keep coming back. You keep asking me questions. You keep kind of, um, you know, encouraging me and starting new dialogues. I couldn't do it without you. I I say it all the time, but it's true. This show continues to exist because you continue to listen to it. And so, um, thank you for the last five years and for these 200 episodes, it truly, truly, truly means so much to me. I feel so lucky that I get to do this and that I get to talk to these people. And I hope that I can continue to do these things in some form uh, in the future, whether that's on the podcast or in some other form as well. So thank you for listening and thank you for supporting me over the last five years. It truly means the world to me. Hopefully we can do this again. This This was really fun. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next week for episode 201.